Pints with Jack, Season 3, Episode 30. After Hours with Jason Lepoyavi. Good morning. Welcome to Pints with Jack, a podcast where two enthusiastic C.S. Lewis amateurs get together, share a beverage, and discuss a work of C.S. Lewis. And this season, we're reading Till We Have Faces. But today is one of our After Hours episodes, and I'm very pleased to have on Dr. Jason Lepoyavi. So a little bit of background. Born to a Canadian mother and a Finnish father, Dr. Lepoyavi studied theology and philosophy at the University of Helsinki. His master's thesis focused on the theology of the body and sexuality by Pope John Paul II, and was published as the first introduction to the subject in Finnish. As a visiting DPhil candidate at Oral College, Oxford, he served as the president of the Oxford University C.S. Lewis Society from 2012 to 2013. After marrying his wife, Issa, in 2013, the following year he was appointed the Junior Research Fellow in Theology at St. Bennett's Hall. He's worked as a scholar-in-residence at Regent College in Vancouver, an assistant professor of religious studies at Thornlow University at Laurentian in Ontario, Canada. His doctoral dissertation, God is Love, but Love is Not God, C.S. Lewis's Theology of Love, analyzed C.S. Lewis's position in and contribution to the debate on love that preoccupied much of 20th century Protestant and Roman Catholic thought. Dr. Lepoyavi, welcome to Pints with Jack. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, David. Well, it was... I don't know how you stayed off my radar for so long. I had somehow found the Regent Audio website and they were giving some talks away for free, including one from you, Alistair McGrath. There were, there were a few of them. And yours just really stood out to me, uh, particularly because it was relating to The Four Loves. And that's a companion book to Till We Have Faces, which is what we're reading this this season on Pints with Jack. But it was just so good. And I just knew, OK, I've got to get this guy on the show this season. But before we get down to it, here at Pints with Jack, we always have a drink of the week and a quote of the week. And I'm drinking, well, basically a pint of coffee. (laughs) (laughs) There's a coffee shop near my house that uh, I still want to patronize, even though the coronavirus stuff is is going on, because I want to make sure that they stay in existence. What are you drinking? I'm drinking coffee as well, but from a slightly more European (laughs) cup. Wow, I'm being utterly outclassed. Well, the quote of the week relates to our subject at hand, and it's some comments that Lewis made in The Four Loves about restraining your love, I suppose you might call it. Lewis wrote this, There is no escape along the lines St. Augustine suggests, nor along any other lines. There is no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. So with that, cheers. Cheers. So I began by giving a little bit of your background, but would you mind filling in the details a little bit more? Because the more I've dug into your life, the more weird and wonderful things that I have found. I particularly would like you to mention your appearance on Survivor and your involvement with Married at First Sight. (laughs) <laughs> well, David, you've been doing some pretty good detective work, I, I see. Thanks for that introduction, by the way. It sounded like an interesting chap that you were introducing. <laughs> <laughs> it's always very encouraging to be reminded of some of the things one has done, um, because usually when you're working, you're just ever uh, mindful of late to-do dates and so on. So. Thanks for that encouragement. I haven't been totally useless. (laughs) 
Those two TV programs that you mentioned, yes, it is true. I make ad, an appearance in reality TV once a decade. <laughs> and my first appearance was about 15 years ago on Survivor. I spent 42 days, I think, on a desert island near Malaysia. So I did not win, but I did lose um, 20 kilos, so about 40 pounds. Wow. An unforgettable experience that I'd repeat, repeat in a heartbeat. And um, 10 years later, so about five years ago, I was the academic host or one of the three hosts on the TV show Married at First Sight for two seasons, where literally <clears throat> we pair um, pair up men and women who uh, meet each other at their own wedding for the first time. Obviously, there's a huge body of uh, psychologists and and preparation involved it's uh, a six month screening period uh -huh. but our success rate has been pretty good um, there's even some babies involved <laughs> wow <laughs> and how were you first introduced to c.s lewis um, by accident by coincidence i was not brought up a narnian i did not read the chronicles of narnia till i was in my 20s but when I was in the Finnish military for a year, all Finnish men have to do that, nothing special, uh, I had time to read and I picked up a book uh, called The Christian Storyteller or something. And it turned out to be a popularized hagiographical biography of Lewis. And in that book, the author mentioned that this C.S. Lewis had also written a book on the problem of evil. And I thought, wow, I'm 19 years old. I thought, wow, that's really interesting. I've always wondered. And so I ordered that book and the rest is history. I fell in love with his style, his writing style, the depth of his um, his his thought and and move on from there, just reading with no intention of actually studying him, but just enamored by the new world that had opened up in front of me. And when did that transition into study? The transition to, into study came at the PhD level. So recently I found an old email sent in that military year to my girlfriend at the time after having read The Four Loves for the first time. And in that old email from 1999, I jokingly tell my girlfriend at the time that, that um, this is so fascinating. I really want to learn more. Uh, one day I'll be called Dr. Love. <laughs> I literally said that. <laughs> and it was a joke, obviously, like Dr. Phil. So I found this some years ago while I was doing or finishing my doctorate on love on Lewis, and it just gave me the goosebumps. <laughs> I had no idea that I was a prophet. <laughs> and now it's validated your title as Dr. Love. Well, it has. Obviously, it, it, is, a, it is a joke, but I keep doing things like uh, hosting uh, reality TV shows on love that augment and... Uh, yeah, exacerbate my my uh, position as Dr. Love. So what about love itself? When did that 
become a subject of interest to you? I mean, obviously, as a teenage boy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't really tell. Um, I think love itself, philosophically, um, it really started to pique my interest when I was doing my master's thesis, because as you so kindly introduced, I wrote it on John Paul II's Theology of the Body, which looks mostly at sexual and embodied love. And I thought, well, these are just some dimensions of love, but there are others. Um, so what are these others? How many kinds of loves are there? Do they have a common denominator? In other words, what is love itself? And so on. And so when it came time to do my doctoral studies, my initial plan, David, and not many people know this, was to compare and contrast John Paul II and C.S. Lewis. Hmm. Um, and to kind of show the Catholic audience how very Catholic-minded Lewis's theology of love is, but also show, show C.S. Lewis's Protestant readers how wise and valuable and Louisian John Paul II is. Mm -hmm. But as I started to read more of Lewis, I realized that this is getting out of hand because I, hadn't, I didn't know how much Lewis had actually written about love and thought about love in so many different genres, from poetry to his first scholarly book, The Allegory of Love, to fiction, and, and of course, to Till We Have Faces, uh, and uh, The Four Loves. And so the Pope fell off the wagon, <laughs> and I just, I finished the PhD with C.S. Lewis only. Now, I think I recall reading that JP2, he did read several of Lewis's works, and I'm pretty sure Walter Hooper met, met John Paul II as well. Yes, I have heard the story from Walter where he met JP2 and the Pope was very interested in Lewis. And according to Walter said that The Four Loves was one of his favorite books. But uh, Karol Wojtyla read other books by Lewis as well, like The Screwtape Letters, which he used his, in, in his early pastoral work with uh, young parishioners. <laughs> so there's another author, thinker, Karol Wojtyla, who was almost in love with love, <laughs> fascinated by the questions pertaining to love, just like C.S. Lewis was. And I, I love your original idea of comparing and contrasting the two, because a project that I've often thought I would love to try and do, because I've read quite a lot of Theology of the Body, and as an Eastern Catholic, one of my go-to guys is St. John Chrysostom, who was the early church father of love, really. And I very often thought about trying to translate the theology of the body specifically into an Eastern Orthodox, Eastern Christianity kind of vernacular. Yes. Well, um, David Bentley Hart, uh, the famous American Orthodox theologian, has very nice things to say about John Paul II's theology of the body. And he, David Bentley Hart describes it as non-polemic, that instead of arguing what, what the Pope does in his theology of the body is paint a beautiful picture and try to make it more attractive than the other pictures out there. And so that's a great project. Uh, I wish you'd do, you will 
complete it one day. <laughs> the reason I didn't simply translate, say, one of the popularizations of the theology of the body, especially by Christopher West, is that the Finnish audience, maybe just like the Orthodox audience, is peculiar and eclectic. And you need to write, address them in, in a certain way and make it more relatable. So I wrote my own book based on my own research instead of translating, which would have been another option. Nice. And we can't leave the subject of love without you mentioning your proposal. Oh, how did you propose uh, to your girlfriend? Uh, well, she wasn't even technically my girlfriend. We just just a girl that you saw. <laughs> it's like she's <laughs> we, cute. A friend, a friend, and we skipped the dating bit more or less. Oh, very Lewisian of you. Well, I suppose so. Yes, in hindsight, I was in Helsinki for a few months to give a lecture series on, on love before returning back to Oxford. And during these few months, my relationship with my friend kind of developed very quickly. And a few weeks before I was going to return to Oxford, at the final lecture of this lecture series, I knew she was going to be there. She was auditing it. I was still a PhD candidate at the time. She was already a teacher. And my last slide had the proposal on it. <laughs> and she, and this was in front of a large audience of students. And she, she said yes. And a friend even caught it on camera. So you can all enjoy it on YouTube nowadays. I'll provide links in the show notes. <laughs> the headlines the next day, it caught the attention of the press had in this big block capital letters, professor proposes to students, <laughs> <laughs> which was terribly inverted because really it was student proposes to professor. <laughs> that was technically correct at the time, but it was all done in good faith and it was a very positive news piece. And she was just auditing the class. It wasn't like you could have failed her if she had said no. Exactly, yes. And now I tell my students that I'm not going to do it again. I have a success rate of one out of one, and so you're all safe, and I'm going to quit while I'm ahead. I'm very much of the same opinion. I've got one girl to agree to marry me. I'm done. It's it's. What's the chance of that being able to happen twice? No, no. You're you're very lucky. Congra congratulations, by the way. Thank David. you. Thank you. Uh, we'll get on to our main topic in a moment, but there was one other thing that I wanted to talk about as I was looking at your postdoctoral work on the theology of worship. And my initial thought was, well, how does that relate to everything that he's done before? Would you mind explaining that? Absolutely. So my postdoctoral project, which is on the back burner since I'm teaching so much lately, I grew out of my PhD work on the theology of love, and it's quite easy to understand how. So a perennial question that has troubled Christian and Christian denominations for century, literally millennia, is where do you draw the line between love and worship? When does our love turn into a form of worship, which, if misdirected to anything but God, becomes idolatry? Where exactly is this line demarcation? 
And Catholics say, well, there's, there's a difference between dulia and latria. Dulia is proper devotion to the saints. Latria is worship uh, proper. But this is just a circular argument. It begs the question, you know, what is the actual difference between two, these two acts, despite their different names? And so phrased in the vocabulary of love, the question that interests me is, what's the difference between veneration, worship, and idolatry? In other words, that love which is due to creatures, veneration, that love which is due to God only, latria or worship, and that love which is due to God only, but misdirected to creatures, idolatry. And I believe there's a lot of work to be done, and it could really diffuse tension between some of the denominations and reveal exactly to what extent we disagree on this issue, very important issue, and to what extent the disagreement is actually more semantic. I think immediately couching it in terms of love immediately starts to bring temperatures down because it, love is something positive. And in Lewis's own language, love can become deformed. And we want to make sure that we don't have deformed, perverted forms of love. Yes, idolatry. Idolatry would be a form of love as well, but just a distorted form of love. And I have another thought on that related to Till We Have Faces, but we'll get to that later. Because this season on Pints with Jack, we've been reading that book, Till We Have Faces. And many people have recognized that this, what Lewis was doing was putting forward in narrative form what he lays out more didactically in The Four Loves. And as I mentioned at the beginning, I first came across your work when I heard a talk you gave from, which I found on Regent Audio. And I know this is something about which you've written. And you were talking about something which Lewis wrote in The Four Loves and a disagreement which he had with one of the early church fathers, St. Augustine of Hippo. And I'll make sure that there is a link in the show notes so listeners can go and listen to your talk. Uh, in this interview, I really just want to whet people's appetites for the material that you're going to be covering. Uh, and we'll get to the disagreement itself in a moment. But for those who are unfamiliar with his work, Matt and I have mentioned him quite often. But who was St. Augustine? St. Augustine is one of the most influential thinkers in Western society. Um, he was brought up in pagan philosophies, converted in his, I think, early 30s, just like many others, like C.S. Lewis, for example and lived in the 4th and 5th centuries in northern Africa with a, I think, a five-year stint in Italy. He became very prolific in his output, very influential in his thinking, and all his training, his classical training in rhetorics, logic, were put to apologetic use, so to speak, after his conversion. And many people say that all of theology after St. Augustine is just a footnote <laughs> on Augustine. Well, we've heard this before. Some say it's actually a footnote on Plato, Aristotle. But the point is that he's very influential and continues to be very, very influential today. And had he had an influence in your own formation? 
Not really. I came across St. Augustine actually after reading The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis, where he shares his disagreement with Augustine. And that led me to read the Confessions myself. And the Confessions was St. Augustine's spiritual autobiography, probably the first of its kind in history where he explains, by then already pretty famous and venerated and respected, where he explains that he has not always been a Christian and gives his reasons for his conversion and confesses, hence the name, confesses many of the sins that he's committed during his lifetime. And as we mentioned, in The Four Loves, Lewis takes exception to something that Augustine says. And he does it very, very nicely. I mean, I've got to say, if I'm going to be disagreeing with a canonized saint and father of the church, I'm going to choose my <laughs> words very carefully. Uh, but what what was his complaint? Oh, wow. In a nutshell, his complaint was that while Augustine made a valuable observation about what is wrong with our human love, his proposed solution, so, uh, so Lewis thinks, was non-Christian, almost anti-Christian. And so important that Lewis felt that he has to object publicly. And so Lewis's disagreement with Augustine expressed in The Four Loves is very unique. It's the only time that I know of that Lewis publicly disagrees with Augustine, whom he calls a great saint and a great thinker to whom my own glad debts are incalculable. Yeah, I, definitely. The reason that Matt and I have mentioned St. Augustine is because we keep seeing him in Lewis's work. So if that was Lewis's criticism, is it valid? Well, Lewis takes exception to his reading. Now, I'd like to say not actually his reading, but the memory of having read Confessions <laughs> years ago, because there is a possibility that Lewis misremembers and possibly even misunderstands bits in his criticism of Augustine. So Lewis takes exception to what Lewis thinks is Augustine's love advice, love tips. So Augustine was the first doctor of love. Okay, gotcha. Oh, oh, there are there are many. I'm standing on the shoulders of doctors of love. Augustine had lost a friend, and according to Lewis's understanding, Lewis's interpretation of this passage shared in the fourth book of the Confessions, Augustine, the takeaway, Augustine's moral. The t love tip that he draws from this experience is that, well, if you love someone too much, um, you will become vulnerable and you will, it will, you will end in heartbreak. And so don't do that. You know, re don't do that. Protect yourself. Ration your love to make sure that you love God more than anyone else. And that way you won't be so devastated when you lose your friends. And Lewis thinks that this is a terrible advice and that it doesn't reflect Augustine's Christendom so much as it does his past uh, 
pagan philosophies in which he grew up. Lewis uses this very good analogy, pagan hangover. <laughs> this is a reflect this is a pagan hangover. So you can think of a hangover, the intoxication is over, but you st- still don't feel all right. There's some toxic whiffs of what Lewis says, neoplatonic mysticism in this advice, but also some residual stoicism. So in other words, what these two philosophies, neoplatonic mysticism and stoicism are all about are the discussion about the particularity versus universality in love on one hand, but also the place of vulnerability in proper love. And also, St. Augustine, he was a Manichaean, so they drew some very hard lines between matter and the things of this world and the spiritual realm. And so possibly there's a little bit of that creeping in as well. Absolutely. And you see it, you see that in the Neoplatonic mysticism, which is an ascending motion from from the material and the particular loves. So I love this person and that person and that cat. An ascending motion into a more so-called spiritual love, a universal love, where it becomes less material and I love in a universal way. And, And Lewis objects to that in saying that, no, you cannot skip over the particular loves and somehow bypass the difficult task, the important task of loving your neighbor and and, uh, find a shortcut to loving God directly. The highest doesn't stand without the lowest. Exactly. The highest doesn't stand without the lowest is one of Lewis's favorite maxims, which he uses more than once in the four loves. And what it really means is not only that the highest doesn't stand without the lowest, but it literally cannot stand without the lowest that the highest depends on the lowest, that our love for God materializes largely in our love for each other. And if you call our our love for each other lower than our love for God, and you take away that lower love, it crumbles and there's nothing left. And the so-called higher becomes theoretical and disappears, evaporates. So that was his objection. Do you think he misunderstood what St. Augustine was saying, though? An interesting detail of Lewis's objection to Augustine, um, which wasn't only about Neoplatonic mysticism, but also about invulnerability. Augustine, according to Lewis, seemed to favor invulnerability, detachment, apathy at the time of writing the, the Confessions. An interesting detail about this is that Lewis misremembers the name whose death had led to Augustine's meditation of love. And Lewis thinks it's Nebridius, but it isn't. Nebridius, his death is recorded much later in the Confessions. I think it's book nine. In reality, Augustine doesn't name his friend. It's an unnamed friend. So one wonders that if Lewis misremembers something so obvious, 
Could he have also missed the context? Is he actually critiquing the bad taste left by reading the confessions years ago? It seems like Lewis did not go back to his notes, did not check the original. And many scholars have suggested that this may be possible. I'm thinking especially of um, Eric Gregory, the Augustinian scholar, the chair of the humanities at Princeton University, but also Joseph Zepeda, they both think that C.S. Lewis misremembering that name is a symptom of a larger problem, which is that Lewis misunderstands Augustine and that Augustine is not really advising you to not love perishable goods or mortal humans or love them only moderately, but that his it's much more profound and subtle than that, that he's trying to teach people to love them correctly and to not love them as if they, they cannot die, for example. That was Augustine's problem in that passage. If you reread it for yourself, you realize that this friend who had died is a friend who had been given an emergency baptism when he was unconscious. And when he snaps out of this baptism, uh, this when he snaps out of this unconsciousness, Augustine, who is still not a Christian, is mocking this deathbed baptism and, and jeopardizes his friend's soul, the more mature Augustine says, and estranges a friend. And, and in these sort of ways, Augustine's love had been faulty. The problem was it wasn't excessive love. The problem was distorted love. Hmm. I, I personally leave it a bit open. So I do think that there are problems with Lewis's critique of Augustine, but Augustine can be quite ambivalent at times. There's a plenty of material there for this traditional interpretation of Augustine's um, infatuation with invulnerability. Lewis's criticism is actually shared by many, many, many. Um, but there's also, on the other hand, material in Augustine for the more revisionist defense of Augustine, of the likes of, of Eric Gregory, for example. So I, I leave it open. The thought that occurred to me after I'd listened to your lecture, and I'd read the Confessions, I think a couple of years before, was it, it put me in mind of something else. As someone that runs a CSOS podcast, I also put out graphics with quotations and pictures of Lewis. And the thing that I constantly have to battle on the internet is people sharing stuff, claiming that it's Lewis, and it's not. So another thought that came to my mind is Lewis could not only be responding to his reading of Augustine of what he remembers, but also what he had heard people teach that St. Augustine taught. And as you say, there's ample evidence in, or there's ample material in Augustine's work for you to reach the, that, that particular conclusion. And so part of me wondered, does it actually hugely matter whether St. Augustine said meant this or not either way in my own journey i have often encountered people that seem to embrace the very view that lewis is critiquing absolutely and you make a really good point because on one hand the scholarly question lewis's acumen 
is much less interesting and important than the actual debate. So what is love? How do we love? These are perennial questions that are important. Lewis's memory is less important. So what I like to say is that if Lewis did misunderstand Augustine, he can let out this theological sigh of relief because now he doesn't have to disagree with his this great saint and great thinker who, to whom his own glad debts are incalculable. And so if Lewis misunderstood, there is no real fundamental disagreement and they can let out a theological sigh of relief. But you are right. Many people do hold the view that Lewis critiques here. And so it is important to have this discussion, preferably by not misrepresenting some actual person's view, but it is a view that is very popular. There are a lot of misquotations out there floating on the internet, but the quote that you quoted from The Four Loves is, is obviously very accurate and it pertains directly to this disagreement with Augustine because Lewis shares that passage. Lewis writes that passage as the culmination, as the finale of his disagreement with Augustine. And I think that leads to its own spiritual fruit. The, the other thing that it, this disagreement puts me in mind of is just in the history of the church, when there have been ecumenical councils called, when there have been great theological issues that have been argued about. Sometimes when I read the historical sources, it really does seem like the two sides are arguing past each other. They're just not quite understanding each other's terms. But at the same time, there is actually some good fruit that comes of this because you have people actively putting in the work to articulate what is the orthodox faith. You then have to work with the semantics of either side and understand what they mean. I mean, classic examples here is faith works. What do these things mean? Justification, sanctification. We have to go ahead and define our terms. But as Proverbs says, iron sharpens iron. When iron when they come, when they come together, there there can be good fruit, even if there is disagreement, and even I would say even if there's misunderstanding. Absolutely. And like you said, the way Lewis expresses his disagreement is admirable. That is a text book example of how to disagree charitably, because that is the sine qua non, the prerequisite for these, the fruit of this disagreement and debate that you mentioned, is that both parties have intellectual and moral virtues that they bring to this discussion. And Lewis does a wonderful job. In fact, even the very opening words are not a coincidence, are very deliberate, he says, when he describes this passage in Augustine, he, Lewis says that with words that can still bring tears to the eyes, St. Augustine describes the desolation in which his friends Nebridius's death plunged him. In words that can still bring tears to the eyes. Now, I think this tears is deliberate because tears is a theme that recurs in confessions repeatedly, usually in a negative sense, part of Augustine's um, insistence on, 
on invulnerability. Tears are a sign of, of misplaced or incomplete love. He grows out of this notion, obviously, but this is what he was taught earlier on in his life. And there, there Lewis is saying and, and admitting to crying. The passage is so beautiful that it still brings tears to the eyes. And even, even with that little detail, Lewis is expressing a certain disagreement. Wow. Well, listeners, I'm going to put a link to the, the main talk, the one that kicked all of this off for me in the show notes. And I'd strongly encourage you to go and have a listen to it because it won't be next season, but we will definitely be doing the four loves at some point in the future. So I want, I want this, this conversation to be in your memory when we do that. And as we round the corner into the home stretch, I'd like to change gears a little bit and talk about the counterpart to The Four Loves, the book which we've been reading this season, Till We Have Faces. And I'd just like to just open it up generally. Do you have any thoughts about what Lewis is trying to teach us about love in that work? Do I have any thoughts about Till We Have Faces? <laughs> oh boy, how much time do you have? Ah, several hours, we're good. <laughs> In fact, just a couple of days ago, I finished the last lecture of a course that I'm teaching this term called Ideas of Love. And the final textbook, the final book that we look at was Till We Have Faces. It's the, the finale, the culmination of that whole term. And I single out three themes that are very prevalent and obvious in that book. There are others, but one is obviously love. The four loves until we have faces are often read or taught or studied in tandem. The second is spiritual longing or joy or Zehnsucht, this unsatisfied longing for we don't know what, which is the theme of Lewis's spiritual autobiography, Surprised by Joy. Uh, which led him to realize that nothing in creation can satisfy this longing. And so there must be something transcendental above creation that does. And so spiritual desire is a theme until we have faces because the main characters, Psyche, Orwell, and Fox, all have different thoughts about that and different experiences. In a nutshell, Orwell doesn't experience it as much, is quite distrustful of it, has an Anders Nugrenian uh, suspicion of this phenomena. Psyche, on the other hand, is almost a personification of the spiritual longing. She lives and breathes it, and it, it dominates her life almost. And then, and Fox falls in between the two with his more rational approach. But then thirdly, a third theme that I always highlight is the problem of evil. It's less explicit. Um, the problem of evil is easily missed, but Till We Have Faces does start off as a complaint against God's injustice. And Oral's heart is very, very slowly and stubbornly and reluctantly changed gradually. There's a trajectory. It ends with a, a not unhopeful note. And I think 
in terms of the different theodicies, different answers to the problem of evil, Till We Have Faces is perhaps even more profound than the, Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain, for example, or even A Grief Observed. You said that it addresses the problem of pain. I'd also say, for me, the thing that jumped out at me was a subset of that problem, which is the problem of divine hiddenness. Because her complaint against the gods is not only have they been cruel to her, but they've been playing this game of cat and mouse. Why don't they just show themselves and speak clearly? That's true, yes. Divine hiddenness is a subset of the problem of evil, as you say. Orwell does, for once, have a see a, a glimpse of the, the castle, the palace. And so she has no moral alibi for her unbelief. And in fact, it, overall, she does believe that they, the gods, exist. The fox admits to being wrong about this. But the question is, are they good gods or are they indifferent? Are they malicious? What kind of gods are there? And so you have this very, very tremendously poignant ending where it ends in mid-sentence. She doesn't complete her sentence because she dies. And and I think it's something like, I, I know now, Lord, why you don't utter an answer. Long did I hate you. Long did I fear you. I might, I might what? You know, might, might love you perhaps? Is that too optimistic? You see this progression from hatred to fear to maybe something more positive. There's also, you probably picked up on this, there's also an interesting monotheistic turn at the very end from addressing the gods in the plural, the final spoken words, the final proclamation is monotheistic. I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. Yes, because she's met the God of love. (laughs) And we've actually kind of come full circle uh, because when I read Orwell's final paragraph, it makes me think of Augustine. Late have I loved you, O beauty ever ancient, ever new. And he speaks about his search when he went out and put his love in the lovely things of creation rather than in the one true God. Augustinian themes in Till We Have Faces are all over the place. And there hasn't been much scholarship on this. I mean, the only article that I can think of is by Joseph Zebeda, Z-E-B-E-D-A. Maybe you should have him for a pint on this show. Absolutely. Called, To Whom My Own Glad Debts Are Incalculable, Saint Augustine and Human Loves in the Four Loves Until We Have Faces. So he talks explicitly about Augustinian themes until we have faces. When I was mentally preparing for this chat with you, I asked a couple of my colleagues about their thoughts of possible Augustinian themes in the book. And immediately somebody says, said that, well, two loves or two cities. Orwell's world is this city of the world, Givitas Terrena. It's selfish, cupiditas, power hungry, uh, libido dominandi. Whereas Psyche's world is God city, 
mm-hmm. Kivitas Day. It's ruled by this caritas or charity. And another friend mentioned the difference between yuti love and frui love, these two Augustinian concepts. I'm throwing these out there in case there's somebody who wants to write a, a doctoral dissertation on it. <laughs> so here are some tags. Here are some tips. Ordo amoris, the right order of loves, is obviously a theme. And then, of course, as I mentioned, spiritual desire or longing as a form of love as well. Excellent. There was one last thing I wanted to speak on this, and it was tying it back to your current postdoctoral work. Because at the time of recording this weekend, Matt and I are going to be recording our episode on the final chapter of Till We Have Faces. And as I was reading it, I thought of your own work and the connection between the theology of worship and the theology of love. And it's in the section where the fox takes Orwell to the pool uh, and then Psyche then takes her to the edge. And there's this change that begins to happen in Orwell. And she writes this. Psyche herself was, in a manner, no one. I loved her as I would once have thought impossible to love, would have died any death for her. And yet it was not, not now, she that really counted. Or if she counted, and oh, she gloriously did, it was for another's sake. The earth and the stars and the sun, all that was and will be, existed for his sake. And he was coming, the most dreadful, the most beautiful, the only dread and beauty there is, was coming. It, it struck me that in this encounter, she has just called Psyche a goddess. But in the very next breath, she realizes that there is still one higher. She is loving Psyche with a greater love than she ever truly loved her on in the real world, on Earth, outside of the vision. Uh, but yet there is still a love that is greater And it made me think, this is what Lewis was talking about in The Four Loves when he says, when agape, when divine love infuses the natural loves, that they are raised even higher. You are right. I I also think immediately about questions of dulia and latria, of appropriate love to creatures and the proper love owned to God only. It seems to me that in this passage, where Orwell is tempted to almost worship Psyche, not quite, but struggling to find the proper words and comes up with goddess, realizing very well that there is something even above her. But there are two um, love principles that I've actually learned from Lewis, from the four loves in particular, that seem to be in play here. One is that, strictly speaking, you can't love a created being too much. It's it's impossible. There's a line by St. Maximilian Colby who says, never be afraid of loving the Blessed Virgin too much. You'll never be able to love her more than Jesus did. There you go. That it's phys- it's, It is impossible to love even Mary too much. Why? Well, simply because it's impossible to love anything or anyone too much. Whenever we're, think, whenever we're tempted to say that problems in love arise from excessive love, when we look at it more closely, we realize that the opposite is true, that it's actually distorted love. Yeah, that's MacDonald in The Great Divorce. Excess, you say, there was not excess. 
there was defect. If she had loved her son more, there would have been no problem, says MacDonald. Yes. And so I think Lewis is right about this. You cannot love in excess, really. The problem is always distorted love. But the other love principle that I've learned, that I've adopted from Lewis is that, and it follows the first one, is that whenever there is a crisis, a conflict of interest, a rivalry, whenever our loves seem to be out of order, inordinate, so to speak, when, whenever we're tempted to say that I'm loving too much, because it's not true, because you cannot literally love too much, the solution to inordinate love is always more love, not less love. That'll always solve the problem. So it'll solve the problem of, of, ex, of distorted devotion to the saints, for example. I mean, it is possible to worship the saints. That's a, that's a mortal sin. So what do you do? Do you love them less? Well, according to Lewis's love principles, no. The solution would actually to be to love them more. In other words, to purify your love towards them. But above all, to love God more. So we love, we don't have two hearts. We have one heart and we love everything and everyone with that one heart. Wonderful. Well, my final question is, I'm getting married in two or three months, depending upon when this episode drops. So do you have any advice, Dr. Love? <laughs> my standard reply to advice is, is uh, do what I say, don't do what I do, or another... Ah, you're a man who has children. <laughs> yes, I do, yes. Can you hear them? Yes. <laughs> so jokingly, I say I keep my personal life and my academic life separate, and love is only what I do at work. <laughs> But no, oh, sorry about that, that screeching upstairs. It's the fruit of love. Let them sing. Oh, that's true. I have three, three little ones. They're all, they're all under five. My love, the love advice that I give to myself, I'd probably give to others as well. And that's a two-part advice. It's first to try and understand what love is first. And only secondly, think of ways to demonstrate it. And so you need to get the first one right first. And so what I think love is, it's an appreciative and responsive commitment to the beloved's flourishing. And it follows from this definition of love that you cannot actually appreciatively and responsively commit to the other's flourishing unless you have all the virtues, all of them. In other words, if, unless you have a very strong character, because every single virtue has a role to play in demonstrating this love, making it manifest like the virtue of faithfulness or courage or practical wisdom that tells you what your beloved's flourishing requires at any given moment and so on. And so the practical consequence of this definition of love is that in order to become a good lover, you need to become a good person. And in order to become a good person, you need to practice your virtues. 
Now that is very unsexy advice, <laughs> unsexy <laughs> advice, David. But I think it's realistic, and in the long run, everything that is realistic is sexier than the unrealistic. Wonderful. You know what? It puts me in mind of the Jack Nicholson movie, as good as it gets, when he gives the line, "You make me want to be a better man." <laughs> it's a tautology, but tautologies, as you know, they're truths. Mm-hmm. They have value. We've heard them too many times. They've lost their taste, but they're usually very powerful truths. Just like two plus two is four is a tautology. But the first time you realize and remember and understand that actually, yes, two plus two is four. And you know why. <laughs> I mean, it can be a groundbreaking experience. And the same with these, these love platitudes as well. When, uh, when I was going through a particular interesting part of my church journey, uh, I remember complaining about a homily that I just heard. It's like, he didn't tell me anything new. All he told me is to love my neighbor as myself. <laughs> what use is that to me? And then this little voice inside me went, well, do you do that? It's like, well, no. It's like, well, maybe you just needed to hear it again. (laughs) Yes, there you go. I have a friend who doesn't read books or didn't used to read books for more than once, thinking, you know, I've done that, been there. Um, But you could say the same about the Eucharist, for example, or I already took it once. (laughs) What more possible grace could there be? Yes. (laughs) Dr. Lepoyavi, thank you so much for chatting and unpacking Augustine, Lewis, Four Loves, Till We Have Faces. Uh, and I would definitely love to have you back on the show to talk about some other topics. Uh, but as we draw things to a close, can you please tell the listeners where they can find out more about you and your work? Well, thank you, David. Um, I love this stuff and I'd be very happy to come back. You can find more about me and my work on my academia.edu page, for example, where I try to upload um, all my publications. You can also find me on Twitter, on Facebook. Um, Unfortunately, like everyone else, I struggle with social media addiction as well. Well, I'll put all of the links of those in the show notes so people can stalk you online. And uh, I'll naturally also include the video of you proposing to your friend. Thanks. Listeners, please join us next Tuesday when I'll be speaking with the artist Lena Maslow about her new children's book about C.S. Lewis. When we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>